God has made tremendous power available to you. The resurrection power of Jesus is available to you. Almost certainly, what I'm about to say is true about you and me, that your capacity for God's power to be working in you is much greater than what you are now experiencing. What does God's power in you, uh, what does that look like? What, it, what is it for? How is God's power, Christian power, gospel power, how is it different than worldly power? As we dig into 2 Samuel 5 today, uh, as you have already noticed, I want you to be thinking about power, about the power of God and in your life. Uh, it is really important uh, for you and for me. Before we dive into our, our text for today, uh, look with me on the screen at, at Mark chapter 12. Jesus has asked uh, a question, and it is common for Jesus to answer a question with a question. He does that here, and he says to religious leaders, and he says also to us today, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? In Jesus' ministry, when he was speaking to the people who studied the Bible a lot, he said to them that, that you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. By his grace, we don't want that to be true of us. And so today's message, in large part, is on this second theme of, of power of God, what was misunderstood by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. A quick uh, definition uh, of power. Uh, I have the Greek word on the screen here, a dunamis. Uh, a quick definition of it, it's potential for functioning in some way. And we could translate this word, or synonyms for this word in English would be power, might, strength, force, uh, capability. God's word speaks about his power available to you, available to me. And what is that for? What does it look like? We're going to see what it looks like in David's life here. And we're also going to look at the New Testament as we think about how God's power and the capacity for us to access and live out his power in our lives, I'm, I'm making the, the suggestion that we are underutilizing his power, you and I. So let's turn our attentions to the text um, at hand and look at verses 1 and 2, 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you have your Bibles open or if you don't have a Bible with you today, there's one in the chairs in front of you. You could also just grab your phone and and type in uh, 2 Samuel 5 at Google, and it'll come right up there. And you'll be able to just track along with me uh, a lot better today if you have this uh, text in front of you. We're going to be going through verse 12. So beginning verses 1 and 2. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one. 
David. You were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. So I circled the yous here in my Bible. There's four times. There's an emphasis here. You, David, were the one. He said it to you. What did God say? He said, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. You get the emphasis there? <laughs> it's on David. It's on you. Now, we are looking at today's text in light of the power of God. So notice here when David got his power. Did David get his power when he became king? Let's try that again. You say no. Did David get his power when he became king? No. The, the people of Israel noticed, look at verse 1, that while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel, David. He was anointed. He had the power. He's the one that took Goliath down. He's the one that people were singing songs about, even more than Saul. You might remember that made Saul jealous. It made him envious. It made him covet. And so the Lord said, you will shepherd my people. They weren't David's people. They weren't Saul's people. They were God's people. And you will become their ruler. So I want us to observe here in verses 1 and 2 that David's power didn't come with the office. It didn't come with being king, with being the monarch, with being the ruler. It came with God's anointing and God's coming into his life. We see in verse 2, you will shepherd my people. I've already alluded to it. These are not David's people. These are God's people, and his mission is to shepherd them. So we see in verses 1 and 2 that the power of God that has been given to David is not for him. It's, it's God-centered power. It's other-oriented. In this case, it's oriented towards shepherding God's people. And prior to this, it was being a military leader and doing the things that David was doing because of the anointing of God. So God-centered power is other-oriented. Look on the screen in, at uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 18. It says, In everything he did, he had great success, uh, not because he had a position of authority, not because he had power, not because uh, you know, he got an, an MBA at the best business school or law school and had all of this intelligence for power. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Uh, we've seen this. Those of you that have been here in recent weeks and recent, recent months, we have seen Saul afraid of David. Saul is the one who actually had the power. He was in charge of the military. He wore the crown. He wore the robe. He gave commands and people followed his orders. But David actually had the success and actually had the power because the Lord was with him. And God was working in great ways and in significant ways through David before he becomes king over all of Israel, which is what happens in today's text. So right at the outset here, I want us to see when we ask the question what Christian power looks like, it is a kind of power that's other-oriented. In this case, in 2 Samuel 5, one of God's people is looking 
to care for the people of Israel. This is his task as ruler and as king. And in recent chapters and in the next few chapters, man, David is dialed in. I'm so happy to be preaching these chapters. David, as you know, many of you are familiar with 2 Samuel. He's at some point going to go off the rails. But right now, he is very close to the Lord, and he has this power and strength, and he is using it for others. He's using it to strengthen the nation. So God-centered power is other-oriented. If we think about power um, in the world sense, if we think about power in our culture, uh, we might think of a lot of things, but we're not going to think of an other orientation or shepherding people. If we think about worldly power in our culture, in our world today, we might think about um, a heads of state, maybe. We, we might think about uh, the, the wealthy, the, the billionaires, uh, among us, we might think of people who have tremendous fame and influence. And if our metric was going to be uh, someone who's walking the earth today, who has the most followers, the most followers, the most social media followers, if that was our metric about power today, I wonder if anybody here knows who that is. It's Work as a country, we're kind of out of step with the world. This is kind of weird. I'm going to put the person on the screen here who has the most followers on our planet in social media. And I think probably very few of you even know who I'm talking about, do you? It's Ronaldo. Who's Ronaldo? Ronaldo is a soccer player. Have you heard of soccer? So the rest of the world looks to soccer for power and money and authority. And this is just a slight, it's not even really an exaggeration. Ronaldo has close to one billion, with a B, followers on social media. So I'm not on Instagram, so I couldn't like get in fully, but I looked at the like splash page or whatever, so just his Instagram has 600 million followers. This soccer player from Portugal who is a pretty well-known guy around the world. Not so much in our country. He's also very wealthy. Uh, topping the list is Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, you, you know you're famous when you just go by one name. He, he generally just goes by Ronaldo. Topping the list is Cristiano Ronaldo, who made an estimated $136 million over the last 12 months as he jumped from England's Premier League to Saudi Arabian soccer club um, Al Nasser. Ronaldo is the most followed person on the planet. I understand many of you don't even know who Ronaldo is, so this you know, maybe isn't the wisest sermon illustration to, to use here, but what I'm trying to get at with Ronaldo is the world impacts you and I about power. Most of us are not wanting to become a world-famous soccer player and have the kind of power he has. It's a little bit closer to home to us. Those of you that are in the working world you probably see people who are in a, a position of authority, of power uh, that's above you, that's uh, beyond you, that's greater than you, that has 
you know, another decimal point or two or three in their salary, or they're looked to in such a way that they have massive amounts of respect. What I'm trying to get at with Ronaldo is the world's view of power is self-oriented. It's about me. It's about, it's about me moving up and, and getting either rich or fame or a, a bigger paycheck or whatever it is. So I'm not really speaking critically of Ronaldo. I don't pretend to know his heart at all, but the ethos around him or other people that you know that you might think in your worst days, in my worst days, I might think, I want to be that person. Look what he has. You might think, I want to be that person. Look what she has. That's what I'm getting at with Ronaldo. There are many people around our planet, not many in this room, but many who look at Ronaldo and think that. That's what I want. That lifestyle, that income, those cars, those houses. That's the kind of power that the evil one in our world would want us to seek. But God-centered power is other-oriented. Coming back to our text here, we see that David has been anointed by God as a mission to shepherd people, to care for Israel, to lead them, and to do other things as well. Well, let's come back to our text. We're going to find four things today. First one is that God-centered power is other-oriented. We're going to have three more. But let's come back and look at verse 3. It says, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So we have been many, many weeks, many, many years, many months of preaching, and finally here, chapter 5 and verse 3, David becomes king over all of Israel. And it's a pretty short sentence here. I mean, it's pretty, he's become king over everyone. And verse 1 tells us that they, the people are saying, we are your own flesh and blood. In other words, we are for you. You are our king. We love you. We look to you. And David is so close to the Lord right now. And he is the anointed king over all of Israel. The divided kingdom is over. The civil war is over. They are under one king. And he is close to God. And he has a lot of power. Verse 4, David was 30 years old. When he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So we have some summary statements going on here. The, the author, we don't know the human author of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, but he is, he is doing some summarizing here, and he's not being strictly chronological. Verse 6, he says, The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. So we've got this summary that David is now king over all of Israel and a summary of how long he reigned. And then we are told one of the very first things that he did is his men marched to uh, Jerusalem to take it, to take the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. So you might ask, you might not ask, but I'm going to make you ask, who are the Jebusites? So the Jebusites, um, Genesis 10 tells us, Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites and the Jebusites. So the Jebusites 
were descendants or part of the Canaanite tribe or clan, if you will, that was to be judged. God had wanted them eliminated and for the people of Israel to occupy the land. So David is finally doing in Jerusalem what God has wanted to have taken place previously. David is actually making it happen here to attack the Jebusites. So let's read about it. We're in the middle of verse 6. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. Let me just pause there for a moment. So the what the author is telling us, those of us that aren't familiar with the Jebusites or what Jerusalem was like at this time in history, it was a massive fortress. It's such a massive fortress that we don't need skilled military defenders to defend Jerusalem. It is such a fortress that we can have the blind and the lame on watch and you ain't getting in here. We are safe and secure in this city, the Chebuzites. They thought, back to the text, verse 6, David cannot get in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion. That's the first mention of Jerusalem by that name, Zion, the city of David. We can see that the author is summarizing here. It wasn't probably called the city of David the second the guys are going in to take it, but this is what the city came to be known as. The city of David, it was taken uh, by David and by his men. And we have more details in the book of Kings. We won't go there about how this battle uh, went out. And we actually have a few more battles uh, coming here. But what I want us to see here is that God's kingdom is expanding under the anointed king of David. And we have to understand that God's kingdom at this point in history under the old covenant is connected with a nation, is connected with a people. That's in the old covenant. In the new covenant today, God's people are churches like this, whether they're in Africa or China or in Switzerland or in Canada or Mexico or wherever they are, God's kingdom is a multi-ethnic, multinational people from all sorts of tribes and tongues and languages. But in the old covenant, God's people was, was a, an ethnic people, a nation, Israel. And God wants to build a temple. And that temple is going to be in this capital, Jerusalem. And David has now just taken this city for God. And so we can see a second thing about Christian power is that it is kingdom expanding. David is expanding the kingdom of God. Literally, it's tied to land and territory. Today, the kingdom of God is tied to spirit and to the gospel. We're not trying to conquer cities or lands by force. We are wanting to take cities and lands by the power of the gospel, by the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is how we advance the kingdom today. But I'm showing you that the kingdom was advanced in David's day in a very different way. So as we read the Old Testament, we want to connect it with the New Testament. We don't read the Old Testament just to get facts and just to learn what happened and just to get knowledge. So the careful reader here will see that God is using someone who is very close to him in his power to expand the kingdom of God. So this is where preaching gets very difficult. Are you listening to me now? I'm talking to you, each of you. How does God want you, your name, 
to expand his kingdom? I don't know. I'm praying right now that God's spirit may be prompting you. And and you may have things right there. Yeah, I, I, I do need to be busy about expanding God's kingdom. What is that? I I don't know what that is. But this is one of the primary takeaways from this passage is David has power because he's close to God, not because he has a position. And he has a heart to expand God's kingdom. For him, it was literal land expanding as well as people's lives. But for us, it's different. So the question we should be asking is, how does God want to expand his kingdom through me? He's taught us to pray a certain way our Lord has. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now I think this prayer is meant to be taken a couple ways, and you and I should be praying this prayer regularly. Now one way it is rightly taken is that we want Jesus to come back and his kingdom to be established. And that is one way to pray this line of this prayer. But there is another way, which I think is the more primary way, or the more way that I'm going to emphasize today, and that is that God wants you and I to be about kingdom expansion, and he wants you and I to begin living now the way that we are going to live in heaven. We are going to live God-centered lives in heaven. We are going to make really good decisions in heaven. We are going to have God-centered, God-saturated beautiful desires in our hearts and minds, and we're going to love our neighbors perfectly in heaven. And so, how does God want me to be expanding his kingdom on earth now? How does he want me to live? His power is available to you and to me to expand his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you want to pray that today? Do you want to pray that this week? That you would be an agent of advancing God's kingdom in the realm in which you live. You might be saying, okay, well, help me out. What what does this look like? Well, on one level, very fundamentally, we're we're called to love our neighbors, our literal neighbors. Uh, Not not Ronaldo. Um, None of us could live in his neighborhood whatever neighborhoods he lives in, whichever one he wants. We all have neighbors, and God commands us to love them. And we love them in part so that they would see and know Jesus and glorify him, and we should live our lives in such a way that that they would see his beauty in us, and this happens in all sorts of ways. As I was praying over this this week in my own life about advancing God's kingdom, there's so many ways that we need to advance God's kingdom, and sometimes we don't see what those ways are. So my wife and I did something this week that we have never done. I've told a couple of you about this already. We did something this week we have never done. We did, we repaired our washing machine. A, a pastor and a pediatrician working on a washing machine. So this was kind of important. Many of you live in homes. You have dirty clothes. It's important to have a functioning washing machine, dry or not so much. But washing machine, you, you need that thing. You need that thing. So the professional comes out. He's like, yeah, 
I can't get the part. I don't have the part. You got to get the part. Here's what. So, so we get the part, and and we got to fix this thing. And so, uh, so, so my wife's got the washing machine tilted. She she she's holding that thing. I'm like crawling back in there, and I zip the cover off. And um, after I get the cover off, she she says, you know, should we unplug this? <laughs> I said I said yeah, we should. We should, we should unplug this. So we unplugged it. We're both still here, so we didn't die. And we get the washing machine, the part, uh, replaced. And we, I mean, we're thinking it's uh, not 50-50, whether it's going to work or not, you know, once we get it all plugged back in. But we replaced this part. It was a hose. We, we put the thing back together. The reason I'm telling this story is not to speak pride in my washing machine repair techniques. Don't call me to fix your washing machine. Um, I do not have skills in that area. But um, the reason I'm telling you this is that, uh, really being serious now, um, my wife was upset at me as, as, as we're doing this. I asked her to do something, you know, while we're doing it. I'm not going to go into the details. But let me just say, she felt like I was demeaning her or speaking down to her. And men, this might come as a surprise to you, but I had no awareness at all, that I was speaking down to her or demeaning her. I didn't, I didn't have that intention or, more problematically, the awareness that I was doing it. And so, um, I, I'm telling you all this to try to get back to, to kingdom-expanding work. And sometimes kingdom-expanding work involves us becoming more like we're going to be in heaven um, in our own relationships with our own wives or husbands or children. And I needed to be more gentle with my wife during this process. And I wasn't. And so th- th- this is, you know, my personal confession in front of you about, as I read today's passage, again, preaching is very difficult. I don't know how God wants to use you to expand his kingdom. I know that resurrection power is available to you, and I think almost certainly you have undervalued and underutilized God's power to advance his kingdom. So I'm praying that there are ways in your life that he has brought to your mind now where you need to advance his kingdom and rely on his power as David did here in verse 7 to take the territory of Jerusalem. Let's come back to our uh, text. We're at uh, verse 8. On that day, uh, David said, so we're in the battle here, taking Jerusalem. On that day, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those, quote, lame and blind, who are David's enemies, is what my text, my translation reads here. So David is using the language that the lame and the blind can defend this. Nobody's getting in here. But David has wisdom. David has power. Not because he's some superman, but because he is close to the Lord and the Lord is close to him. The main point here is that you and I have access to the same power, the same God that David has. And David knows if we're going to take this city, we've got to go through the water shaft. So continuing in verse 8, that is why they say the the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Verse 9, David then took up residence 
in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. Some of your translations there say the, the Milo. What we're talking about is there were these you know, fill areas where they would build a wall and fill it to get flat ground, and, and he built up these areas from, from the supporting terraces inward. Verse 10, and he became more and more powerful because he was so rich, because he was so smart, because he was more like Ronaldo. No, he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's what I want. That's what you, if you are a Christ follower, you should be wanting. As you listen to this sermon, as you listen to this text, you should be saying, I want the Lord God Almighty, his power to be with me so that I can have joy and peace, yes, so that I can be part of his kingdom expanding mission. This is what David was all about at this point in his life. One commentator writes this, he says, David himself is not the source of his strength. The narrator is quick to remind his readers that the Lord God Almighty, the true King of Israel, grants his power and as always is with him. Emmanuel, God, is with us. Christ is with us. The Lord God Almighty, the same God who empowered David, empowers you and me for godly living, for missional living, to transform us. Men, probably many of you, like me, need to be more gentle and caring and kind and live the way that we're going to live in heaven. We need to begin living that way now. That's part of expanding God's kingdom. It's living the way we're going to live forever and ever and ever in the new heavens and new earth, living that way now. Let's finish up our text here, verses um, 11 and 12. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. I've alluded to it numerous times I don't want to allude to it too much, but times are, are going to, David's going to be going off the rails here. And so I think this mention of the palace being built is, is a little bit of a foreshadowing, a little bit of a foretelling of what's, what's coming in 2 Samuel. That in addition to taking the territory, that's a really good thing. The second thing is he built a palace. Now it's not a sin to build a palace for the king, but how is he going to steward that palace? And so there's just a little bit of foreshadowing there. Verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and, exalted and, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, not for the sake of David, not for the sake of Mike, not for the sake of you. The reason that we have God's power is for other-oriented reasons, for his people Israel, for his church, for your neighbors, for those people that you associate with in your family, at work, in your sphere of influence. This is what he has given you power for to expand his kingdom. God-centered power is about expanding his kingdom. And it is why he has given it to us. The cedars of Lebanon were mentioned here. A couple pictures, those cedars are, look very different than the cedars in the Sierra here. And there are very few of them left. Anybody been to Lebanon, been to the state park there? Probably, it's not a common uh, place to travel to, but thought maybe 
someone has been there. I haven't been there, but this is uh, very few of these trees left, but this is uh, what they look like and what his uh, palace was built with. In the last few minutes we have here, I want to connect the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with the New Covenant, with this theme of power. And so I want to look on the screen with you at Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It says this, But you, you will receive power. These are the disciples, the apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I'm bringing up this passage with this theme that we see in 2 Samuel 5 about power. We see it here in Acts 1. We receive this power, you and I, from the Holy Spirit. And why have we received this power? To be witnesses. The church of Jesus started in Jerusalem. It went out to Judea, went out to Samaria, and today it is continuing even to the remotest part of the earth. We are on a mission to be witnesses for Jesus In the U.S., in Mexico, in Canada, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So as we read that passage, I feel like we have a tendency to perhaps overemphasize the remotest part of the earth and forget about the people who live down the street from you or down the hallway office from you. God has you where you are to be on mission where you are. Some of us are called to cross an ocean or a culture and go to the remotest part of the earth, but I don't think that's anyone here right now. I mean, maybe God's calling you to that. And if you are, that that is awesome. But most of us are going to live around here in the foothills or in America and probably die in America. And so you are on mission in America, in the foothills. And he has given you power that goes all the way back to the first believers, the first apostles, to be his witnesses. Say, witnesses to what? We are his witnesses to the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what we are called to be witnesses to, that our lives demonstrate the gospel. God's love for us seen in what Jesus has done. One commentator says this, This commission, the Acts 1-8 commission, to be witnesses, lays an obligation on all Christians and comes to us as a gift with a promise. It concerns a person, that person is Jesus. It concerns a power, we've been talking about that power this whole sermon, and it contains a program, a program of making disciples or being a witness to others so that we can make disciples. The program, the mission of every Christian is to make disciples. So if we go back to this idea of kingdom expandingness, you should be thinking, how would God want me to expand his kingdom in making disciples? I don't know the answer to that question, but I believe that we have underutilized the power of God in living out his mission. So God-centered power is its witness-based so the power of God, it's, it's other-oriented, it's kingdom-expanding, and it's about being a witness to the actual greatest event that has happened in history of the world. It, it's not Ronaldo. It's not Messi. It's not, you know, the, the Denver Nuggets. It's not anything. The, the, 
anything that might gather the world's attention, the, the biggest blockbuster this summer, the greatest event in the history of the world is the coming of God in Jesus, a human who lived a sinless life and died a death in our place and rose on the third day. And in him, we have access to the power of the gospel to be a witness to that event. So Christian power looks like this. It's other-oriented, it's kingdom-expanding, and it's witness-based. The last New Testament text and last point I want to hit today is somewhat of a shocking one. If you had never been in a church, you didn't know anything about the Bible or Christianity, but you knew a lot about power just from living life in this world, in, in, in California, in the foothills. You knew a lot about power. This is probably the very last thing you would think that would go with power. But it's at the heart of gospel power, of New Testament power. 2 Corinthians 12. He said to me, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Man, this is one of those times where, like, I'm the delivery guy, right? I'm not writing my sermon. God's written my sermon, He's given me the Bible. Like, no pastor in his own would say, hey, let me tell you what kind of power you've got. You've got power that is made perfect in weakness. No pastor would come up with that except for if he's preaching the Bible. What do you mean, Mike? Power is made perfect in weakness. Well, this is what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, to paraphrase what he's saying here, he's saying that God's power is actually seen in me when I'm suffering and I have joy and satisfaction in God. And, and even though I'm suffering, even though I have difficulties or persecutions, but I know that God is with me and I'm close to him and people see that, that's when God's power is seen. God's power is made perfect in weakness. This isn't a truth that we on one level want or like, but it's really important, this truth. Christian power, gospel power, new covenant power often involves weakness. And so it is important when we're studying a text like 2 Samuel 5 that we just don't get all bravado and say, yeah, God's power, I'm going to go take this, uh, uh, you know, give, give me some ammo and I, I'm, I'm ready to go. This is not a get, get some ammo, let's get ready to go passage about power, 2 Corinthians 12. It is really important. And so what Christian power looks like is power that is perfected in weakness thought I would close today as I was praying over this this week so many different people came to my mind I've shared with you about the person I'm about to share many times and I'll probably share about him again many people came to my mind who I have seen God's power in in their weakness and the person I, I want to just share with you who uh, you know like I've said before many of the best sermons I've I've heard are, are actually seeing Christians live their lives it's not from an actual sermon um, one of the best sermons uh, I've ever heard was, was from my father-in-law in the last years of his life. He was uh, a, a leader, a patriarch in his family. It's rare to have a large family, eight children, 
many, many grandchildren, it's rare to have everyone look to you in your family as a leader, regardless of your worldview or where you're at. He was that kind of person. And when he lost uh, his wife of whatever it was, 50 years or more, wow, it was, it was very hard, and his body's failing, and his wife is gone, and you just don't really picture this weakness and this brokenness in someone that you look to as, as a hero. <clears throat> and I remember as he was uh, grieving and, and getting sick, I remember having a conversation with him one time where he, he looks at me in the eyes, and he's talking to me about his relationship with Jesus. And he says, I have never been closer to Jesus than I am right now. He was heartbroken, body weak. It was a journey for him to walk like a quarter of a mile with a walker down his sidewalk. So from a physical perspective, he, he, he was terrible. From a spiritual perspective, the power of God was on this guy. It was on him. The closest he was to the Lord what was, was when he was in many ways miserable and weak and grieving. But Jesus was close to him and he was expanding God's kingdom by sharing with a young son-in-law and others the power of God when he was weak. This is what Christian power looks like. It's other-oriented. It's kingdom-expanding. It's witness-based. And it's perfected as much as we don't want it to be in weakness. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that the resurrection power of Jesus is available to us. We confess to you that we often think that we've got it together and the world influences us in ways about power that are frankly evil, that don't involve suffering, that don't involve serving, that don't involve other orientation. They often involve money and fame, wealth, prestige, things that in and of themselves are not sinful, but when we're excessively attached to them, they are sinful and destructive. Free us from worldly perspectives of power. Help us, God, when we find ourselves in situations where we feel weak, whether that's physically weak or emotionally weak or spiritually weak, that in those moments in particular we would be close to you and know the power of God. And even in those desperate moments in life where we are suffering, that we would have a durable sense of joy and love for you. I thank you for the Christians that I have seen that in. And I pray by your grace that you would tune my heart to be in line with that kind of power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.